Number 523 has been asked that we mark that as we use that later in the lesson this evening or following the lesson. We'll do that as a time of opportunity and a time of convenience. But to bring us to that point, might we give some attention to the teachings, a section again of the Word of God. As Brother Gary mentioned earlier, we are thankful for the presence of each and every one, our membership, our visitors alike, and we trust that we each can be magnified and edified, and most importantly, that of course the name of God can be exalted as it so richly and rightly deserves. Wasn't it true the psalmist declared in Psalm 89 verse 7 about the reverence that's due into the very name of God? It is our desire, our privilege to direct that toward His holy and His matchless name even this very evening. As you well know, for those that have been with us through for the last several weeks, it has been our interest to give some thought to the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. It is the fourth of the major prophets, that set of books that begins with Isaiah and terminates with Daniel. It is a set of books that so often is a prophetical set of ideas in which it can be deep, it can often be profound, and yet it has been our notice that the book of Ezekiel has set forth in a rather straightforward fashion much of the comments and much of the truth that you and I have seen. They have so often surrounded perhaps some ideas like I've tried to summarize exceedingly briefly here. It is fair to say the first 24 chapters of the book has focused upon the judgment of God upon Israel. This particular nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, because they were guilty of sin. They were guilty of transgression, violation. They were guilty of profaning the very name of God. As you and I noticed then in beginning in chapter 25, God also turned His attention to the nations that were also existent at that, that time. Nations like Moab and Ammon, Egypt, the Philistines and others. And God also observed the fact that they too had violated His will, the patriarchal law under which they served, and so they too would suffer beneath the judgment of an angry God. As you and I came last week to chapters 33, 34, and 35, we noticed then that God also had a final lesson, another lesson for Ezekiel. Ezekiel was the watchman. He was to take upon himself the liberty of declaring the very Word of God, and hopefully the people would have an earnestness and an honest heart of response to it. For that reason, in chapter 34, the shepherds were addressed. These who had, in fact, advantaged themselves, though they were supposed to have been a very humble leader for Israel, they were not. God also asserted that they would be judged. And, of course, that judgment would rapidly come. Tonight, we come to chapters 36 to 39. I hope that you'll turn with me to that set of chapters in the book of Ezekiel. I think it's entirely fair to say that much, much emphasis in the book of Ezekiel is given to these four chapters. It's almost certainly a safe thing to say that if anything is known about Ezekiel by the common individual, it's likely out of chapters 37, 38, and 39. And so tonight we'll attempt to do our justice as we address them in passing. Our task, quite frankly, will be rather easier than it might otherwise have been because we now know the context. We know what has been discussed in the previous 35 chapters. We know what the thrust of these has been. Placing these in context will now be relatively straightforward. But as we do so, we shall find a world of distinction between what these chapters actually say and what many in the world claim that they say. They intact are such that ne'er the twain shall meet. 
The world has made a mockery of these chapters. Even those who are of denominational persuasion, those who are given as to a matter of religion, have taken and have abused and maligned these chapters in almost indescribable ways. But yet, we shall find the message really isn't that challenging. To begin, let's turn our attention to chapter 36. Chapter 36 is one that it seems to me fair to entitle the revival of Israel. Consider with me the placement of this chapter as it comes after these that you and I have discussed now for the last several weeks. Throughout these first chapters in Ezekiel, the strong message has been harsh judgment of God because of sin. You, Judah, are guilty of any number of things, neglecting my work, taking my name in vain, any number of other matters. In light of all of that, chapter 36 is quite frankly a breath of fresh air for Israel. It speaks about a sweet revival. Let's build that notion the way that God through Ezekiel develops it. You'll notice again that after these messages of judgment and after these harsh subjects that you and I have discussed for so long, it is interesting that God now says all hope is not lost. All difficulties are such that you can still overcome them. And so it is in the first seven verses of Ezekiel 36 we find God commissioning Ezekiel to preach to the mountains. Isn't that an interesting audience? The mountains. But yet the message was a very clear one presented in ways like this. The land of Canaan, that land of Palestine, the land that was shortly to be greatly overrun by the Babylonians and a land that was going to suffer beneath the terribleness and the onslaught of the coming enemy. God now says to Ezekiel, you preach to the land. You preach to these mountains and let them know that there is a day of revival coming. A time when, as I've tried to illustrate, the land is going to be tilled again. There will come a time when this very land is going to be plowed and crops will be grown and people will inhabit it again. You and I know that the time was now about to happen when Babylon was coming and this land, this land, was going to be removed in the sense that the people were going to be taken away from it. Those who cherished it and those who had a desire to appreciate it, they weren't going to live there anymore. They were going to be hauled off into a foreign land, suffering beneath the terribleness of those foreign powers and those foreign enemies. It is in this regard now to the land, God says, you can rest assured that my promise is a certainty. It will be tilled again. Might you notice with me carefully the language as it occurs. In verse number 7, Thus saith the Lord God, I have lifted up mine hand. Surely the heathen that are about you, they shall bear their shame. But ye, O mountains of Israel, ye shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people of Israel, for they are at hand to come. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn unto you, and ye shall be tilled and sown. And I will multiply men upon you, all the house of Israel, even all of it. And the city shall be inhabited, and the wastes shall be builded. This land was going to look desolate, wasn't it? After the temple was destroyed and after the other fine houses were demolished, the land was going to look so different than what it once had. But God promises you're again going to be rebuilt. You'll notice the next set of verses in this same chapter particularly verses 8 through 15, make not only a promise that the land will be cultivated and tilled again, 
But note carefully verse number 12 and the special language it appears in that place. Yea, I will cause men to walk upon you, even my people Israel. And they shall possess thee, and thou shalt be their inheritance, and thou shalt no more henceforth bereave them of men. You'll notice Israel taken away in captivity, but they will possess it again. What a sweet thought. No doubt that rang supreme in the mind of these who were Israelites. Do you mean, God, that we're going to get to come home and yet envision a wonderful occupation of this land? And that's exactly what God promised. Beyond that, you'll notice furthermore in verses 16 to 20, God makes another reminder to the prophet Ezekiel about the characteristics of the captivity. In fact, he highlights there the whole reason again is because of their sin. God is not just an arbitrary tyrant. He didn't just throw them out of the land because He was tired of them. He was frustrated with their sin and they brought that sentence upon themselves. It is true that as you close verse number 19 and 20, you find the opening of another paragraph. In verses 21 and following, God reminds them they had profaned His holy name. He does that in a way that reads like this. But I had pity for mine holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen, whither they went. God respected His own name. And this people that it was going to be scattered abroad, He says, they will be brought back because I've had pity for my name. And I wish to reestablish a people who were respectful of it. The last section of the chapter, chapter or verses 25 to 38, is a description one more time about an interesting application. I'd invite you to read with me as we start reading in verse 25. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. We have an amazing picture, do we not? Here was a people, God says, I'm going to take that old crushed heart out of you, that old stony one, and give you a heart of flesh, where again you'll be a revived people, a people who'll be respectful of my ways and will honor my laws and judgments. No wonder we have an image of what that future reoccupation of Israel was going to be like. We'll speak more about that at the proper time in the lesson this evening. As that chapter closes, we then have what may appear to be a rather different chapter than some of those that have preceded. Harsh judgment then, but God here speaks of a renewed revival, a return to the land of Israel after the days of captivity. He's going to build on that lesson. Let's move into chapter 37. What else is said about this revival? This revival of Israel in this chapter takes the most heightened form it's found anywhere in the book of Ezekiel. You know it well. In fact, songs have been written about this chapter. It is a chapter that immediately you'll recognize it. Ezekiel's famous valley of dry bones. Let's develop that thought over the first 14 verses of this chapter. The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out of the spirit of the carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones. As we transition into chapter 37, we notice that God in the spirit takes Ezekiel and sets him down 
in a very unusual place. In the Spirit, He is set down in a place that's full of bones. Notice the picture at the upper left, if you would. It is a valley, and you'll notice there are many, many, many of these dry bones. As you'll notice in the reading that follows, the text is very clear in saying that these bones are dried and our hope is lost. Now, a dry bone is one that has been following death for some time. It's as if this is a valley full of the mere bones of some dismantled skeletons, long since dead, no life to be seen anywhere among them. This is what Ezekiel now sees. However, God asks him a question in verse number 3. Son of man, can these bones live? Can you imagine the nerve of such a question? Obviously they're dead. Obviously there's no life within them. And yet God says, Son of man, can these bones live? You'll notice quickly, you and I should forever be thankful for the astuteness of Ezekiel's answer. You and I might have been tempted with obviousness to say, Well, of course they can't live. They're dead, God. But yet Ezekiel, with a perception far exceeding perhaps that of some of us, said, O Lord God, Thou knowest. All things are possible with God, aren't they? Matthew 19, 26. And so it is that here after Ezekiel's statement, God then addresses him and says in verse 4, Prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you. And ye shall live, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. God gives Ezekiel a very interesting commission, doesn't He? Ezekiel, you see those bones? Preach to them. Notice the word that he was to give, hear the word of the Lord. They were just bones, skeletons, if you please, and yet they were such that Ezekiel was told to preach to them. And not only that, there was a promise that you'll observe the bones would in fact come back together, sinew and skin would be placed upon them. In fact, even breath ultimately would be found again in them. At that point, notice the favor of chapter verse number 7. It says, so I prophesied as I was commanded. Although it may have appeared unusual, it may have appeared exceedingly awkward, Ezekiel did exactly what he was told. He prophesied to these bones, these dry bones. As he did so in verse number 7, notice the development that begins to take place. And as I was prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a shaking, and the bones came together bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came up upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Then said he unto me, Prophesy under the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceeding great army." Notice the picture over to the right. As Ezekiel prophesied pieces, the bones came together and began, of course, to appreciate the covering with sinew and skin. But they still weren't alive. There was no breath to be found in them. Notice the bottom left picture, if you would. Now you notice they became alive again. When the Spirit filled them, the breath, if you please, 
And now they stood upon their feet. There was an exceedingly great army. The development of that set of verses is again well known to us as you and I have so often reflected upon it. Now the obvious question is, what does that mean? It's one thing to speak about the character of this proclamation and these dry bones. What does it mean? Let's go back to the previous slide if we might. As you look at the statements to be found on that slide, it's again a rehearsal of what you and I just read, the portions and segments out of Ezekiel chapter 37. As Ezekiel prophesied, notice again the interesting development. These, it was just nothing but a valley full of dry bones, and now an exceedingly large army is standing before him. An army that's alive, an army that is, of course, well-positioned, it's at this point that we might pause to make this statement. This too has been a passage that has found its difficulty in, in the mind of some. There are those who consider that this great army that you and I have just referenced in verses 7 and following is an army that supposedly is going to appear near the end of time. A large gigantic army that will in fact be there to defeat the Antichrist. Nothing could be further from the truth. This army has nothing to do with that. In fact, isn't it interesting that in verse number 11, God explains to us what this means. We are not left to wonder. We are not left with any kind of unclearness about it. What is the statement then in these verses? You'll notice the explanation at the very bottom is this. Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. That's what God says. At this point, you and I can understand easily how that develops. At this time, the children of Israel, due to their sins, were suffering beneath a foreign captivity. They were suffering far from their land. Their temple had been destroyed. Their connection to God had been severed. For all apparent purposes, they were lifeless and dead. But God, through Ezekiel, says they're going to come back to life. There's going to be a revival, a resurrection, if you please. And when it does... Notice how verse number 11 finishes. Behold, they say, our, bone, our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We're cut off for our parts. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves." This people were figuratively dead. Again, separated from the temple, it had been destroyed, 2 Kings 25.9. But now we observe God says there's going to be revival. You again are going to be permitted and allowed and blessed to return to the land of Canaan and to establish again the cities that you once had inhabited. That revival is figuratively portrayed in this valley of dry bones. I wonder though, could it even go deeper than that? That revival of Israel, it seems, is fair to comment as we come to this slide, is extended as we finish up chapter 37. Please note that what we've said to this point about this valley of dry bones really leads us into this which is next. So let's discuss them both together. 
immediately in verse number 15 of Ezekiel 37, we find another attribute, another description of a revival. Let's highlight that in passing. Verse 15, The word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick, and write upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel his companions, and then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel his companions. You can picture it. In one hand of Ezekiel was a stick, and on it was written the name of Ephraim. On another hand, again a different stick, and on it, as you can see in that verse, was written the name of Judah. And then God says, Ezekiel, join the two sticks together, so that there's but one stick. And so you can imagine him holding it in such a way that one stick comes out from the top of his hand, another at the bottom, but at that point they appear one stick. You and I notice that it says in verse 17, Join them one to another, and they shall become one in thine hand. Interesting, isn't it? What do the two sticks mean? Thankfully, again, God tells us we are not left to wonder. In fact, He says, verse 18, And when the children of thy people shall speak unto thee, saying, What wilt thou not show us what thou meanest by these? Say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel his fellows, and will put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in mine hand. We've already seen the hint that the two sticks are representative of the tribes. Let's let God identify that with completeness. Verse 22, And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all. And they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. There has been much made about the two sticks. And you and I, though, have identified that some of those things at the top are clearly set forth. There are those in our land today who claim the two sticks represent two books. There are those who claim one of them is the Bible, the other is the Book of Mormon. And they claim that God has joined those two together to make one complete revelation of Himself. And to that, you and I would say nonsense. For isn't it true, God has identified what the sticks represent. They were the tribes of Israel. After the days of Solomon, when his son Rehoboam reigned, you remember there was a division of the kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel had its centerpiece of, in, in Ephraim and in Samaria. The southern kingdom was known as Judah with Jerusalem as its capital. God now says, despite the fact that there were two of these at once, I'm going to join them into one nation after the time of the captivity. And that's what happened, wasn't it? As you can see near the top of that slide, we have some interesting features in about a unity and a oneness from this chapter. The bones were going to come back to life. There would be a revival. The people would be blessed to go back to the land. And not only that, they would come back as one nation, not two. They'll come back as one people dedicated and devoted unto the, unto the God of heaven, not two separate nations. It may be wise then to observe yet another picture. The sign of the two sticks. If you can read some of the writing on that, the stick of Judah, the stick of Joseph, and God exceedingly said, they shall be one. 
This has nothing to do with two books. It has nothing to do with two of other matters except God says it's nations. As you and I let God identify what it was He was describing, how sweet it is to quickly observe a few rapid lessons. At the bottom of that, isn't it fair to say through these first couple of chapters that these things almost leap off the page to us? God had been a God who had set forth the necessary judgment upon the people because of their sin. But yet in this chapter, He portrays to them a, re a renewed revival, a resurrection. In other words, God is a God of both the positive and the negative, isn't He? He does tell us what our sins are and He makes them known to us, but He also holds out the promise of hope and repentance in life if we will obey. Isn't it said in Amos 5 verse 15 that we are to in fact hate the evil but love the good? There are two works, there are two activities involved. You'll notice all throughout the other examples in Jeremiah 1.10 that same kind of idea is brought before you and me. Wasn't it true that God told the prophet Jeremiah, as you preach, as you prophesy, as you proclaim, there were six things that were set, set before him. Notice what the first four of them were. Jeremiah, you tear down, you throw down, you destroy. But then he says, you plant and you build. Both things were involved. You have to destroy the evil, remove the evil, but then, of course, accentuate and preach the good. Maybe another lesson. You and I come to realize in these chapters, God has straightforwardly proclaimed a revival of His people. After the days of captivity, that did happen. In 536 B.C., the king Cyrus in Persia gave a decree. The people are allowed to return if they want to. You and I can find the details of that in the book of Ezra. And so what God prophesied did come to pass exactly as He said it would. And when they came back, there was one nation devoted unto God. And perhaps that final lesson... It seems so clear that there is nonetheless a distant reference to Jesus in some of these chapters. For after all, that revival, that one nation, did you notice he mentioned one king? And that king, as we learned last week, was none other than Jesus the Christ in the finest and fullness of its meaning. Is it any wonder then, in chapter 37, verse 24, it says, David my servant shall be king over them. Now, David was long since dead, but we learned last week that referred to Christ. No wonder then we have every hope as we look into chapters 38 and 39. Thankfully, we'll not need to be overly lengthy about those two chapters. For after all, it begins like this. These two chapters are the hotbed of premillennial teaching. If you listen to those gentlemen on television like John Hagee and a whole host of others, they will count for literally untold sermons in these two chapters because they seemingly, they think, find in them those descriptions of the end of time. In fact, here are just a few of the things they seemingly have found in these chapters. There's mention of Israel and there's an army in a battle between Russia and Israel. They find the Arabs as they also are involved in the battle as well. They find in these chapters references to atomic bombs and helicopters and all kinds of sophisticated militaristic armament. Notice I said that's what they find. 
It's not to be found here. It's not to be found anywhere in these two chapters. As you and I develop the thoughts about the two chapters, let me ask you to think about this movement. In chapters 36 and 37, we've just discussed and seen God's promise of a return. But if you were a person in Israel, if you were a Jew, what might be one of the thoughts that would cross your mind? Well, may I submit it might well have been this. We occupied this land at one time. In fact, in the days of Joshua, it was ours and we were blessed to have it. But notice the time came, we were removed. The time came, someone came and threw us out. How do we know that once God allows us to take the land again, that there won't come a future time when we won't be cast out again? That's the purpose of chapters 38 and 39. Not only will they occupy, God assures them of their security in that land. He assures them of the finest degree of protection that He will afford them. And it develops like this. In chapter 38, verse number 2, he immediately begins like this, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Immediately we find mention of these unusual places, Gog, Magog, Tubal, Meshach. And he says, verse 3, I am against thee. Wherever these were understood to be. God was against them. They violated, they were against His plan, against His mission, and God being against them develops into verse 4, I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth and all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords." Notice again that these particular areas, these arenas, are such that here are just a few of what our modern-day people claim they have found in these chapters. We noticed them a moment ago, but if you look from the top, you notice a tremendous army in dark. People who are supposedly that ready to fight in battle against Russia. Over to the right, you see missiles being fired in various armaments with tanks and bombs. At the far left, bottom left I should say, you see the detonation of an atomic bomb in the distance. If you listen again with care and to the eloquence of these gentlemen, they speak about all of those things in this chapter. As you and I have, at least in past, noticed, it is not to be found here. Isn't it interesting in light of all those things, here's a map. It's a map that highlights the location of these places that we've just noticed. Meshach and Tubal, for instance. If you can look at what's circled, notice that they surround the nation of Israel. Some of them are positioned to the north. Some of them are positioned over to the east. Others are like Libya or down here to the, to the south and west. In other words, what God was conveying to the people is... You are surrounded by all of these nations, north, south, east, and west. What would happen if they all, at the same time, arrayed their forces against Israel? Well, you and I know well from our own mind what would happen. Israel would have no hope of defeating all of those armies at the same time, coming from every conceivable direction. That's the whole point of these two chapters. 
God says in a figurative fashion, if all of these nations were to come against you, I will defeat every one of them at the same time for you. Israel was not even going to have to raise a battlement, not even going to have to raise a military piece of equipment. God says that He would take care of all of it. I've stated that in some ways, as you will see furthermore on that slide. At the time that this was written, the people of Israel were portrayed as dwelling in safety. Look at verse 11 with me of chapter 38. And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest and dwell, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. Imagine it. Here's God's people dwelling so safely that there's not even any walls around the cities. Now you and I know in the ancient era that was unthinkable. All the major cities built walls for protection and security, but God portrays them as you're living in an unwalled city and you're doing so with safety because I'm the one protecting you. And so if all these nations come against you, don't you fear. I will ensure that you are victorious, that you are in fact the one that emerges with the victory, that they are the ones so completely and utterly defeated that the description of chapters 39 is now going to come before us. I've tried to highlight what has been the major idea of chapter 38, the security of Israel. That security is deepened in the following way. After all, look at some of the things that are stated. And I mentioned these with care in passing. Several of the particulars about this army are given to us. Now remember, these in the modern day think they find helicopters and bombs and other kinds of things, when yet the chapter mentions bows and arrows and weapons of wood. That's explicitly what is mentioned. So may I say, if all those gentlemen are right, apparently at the end of time, the battle would not be with tanks and bombs. It would have to be with weapons of wood. Again, it's almost unthinkable, isn't it? And it's really such nonsense. In fact, notice how large an army this was. You and I highlighted it a moment ago. All these nations coming against Israel at the same time, and yet the army coming against them is so large that their weapons of wood were sufficiently extensive that Israel was able to take them, burn them for heat and for fuel for months on end. In fact, I've tried to highlight it like this. Seven years was going to be the amount of time in the portrayal of this passage that those weapons from the enemy would be sufficient to burn and to heat the people of Israel. That's a lot of weapons, isn't it? Can you think about how many weapons that would have to be to heat for all the people of Israel, their homes, and to fuel them for seven years? That's just God's way of stating how large in figurative fashion this enemy was going to be. That's not all. God says every one of them will be defeated. Every one of them will be, in fact, brought to death. Notice how long it took to bury them. As the people of Israel were busy burying the enemy, it was going to take seven months to bury them all. Ponder that with me. Imagine how many enemy there would have to be if you, working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, took you seven months to bury all of them. That's how big an army in the characteristic 
of this picture is portrayed. And God says, Israel's protected from every one of them. God is with them, and God is, in fact, taking care of them. The protection is amazing. Again, in chapters 36 and 37, the revival of Israel. Chapters 38 and 39, the security, protection of Israel. You'll notice it proceeds rather quickly at this point to conclude like this. Chapter 39, this amazing set of ideas about the burial of all these enemies. As you reach verses 17 and following, even the beasts of the field enter into the consideration. The fowls of the air are able to appreciate the great victory of God with His people. And then that brings us to verses 23 to 29 that Brother Ted read earlier for us. It summarizes so very well all four of these chapters. In fact, might I just, without rereading all of it, pick out just two of those verses. Again, our emphasis has been the revival of Israel and the security of Israel. In verse number 27, When I have brought them again from the enemy and gathered them out of their enemies' lands and am sanctified in them in the sight of many nations, then shall they know that I am the Lord their God, which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen. But I have gathered them unto their own land and have left none of them any more there. They're going to dwell safely upon that return. As you and I study the books of Haggai and Zechariah and Ezra and some others, we notice they did return and God did bless them grandly. As you and I know, the greatest exposition of this, though, was found in the days of the New Testament. The safety that comes with being a member of the church of Christ. Didn't Daniel say in Daniel 2 verse 44 that once the church was established, it would never, ever be destroyed? Doesn't that sound in a way like the powerful consideration of what we've studied tonight? God's protection of His body, of His church. Aren't you thankful to be a member of it? As you and I then dwell safely in the confines of that, it doesn't matter what men may do to us. For our hope is laid up in heaven, Colossians 1.5. And we know very well that in the finality of that day of judgment, how sweet it'll be to hear the Master say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Matthew 25, 21. Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. Matthew, Luke 19, verses 30 and following. It is true as we come to that point in the lesson tonight. Let's close our lesson with one final thought. The thrilling nature of these four chapters. The return and the security of Israel. As we've just noticed... You and I today can know that not in the physical geography of Israel, admittedly, but in the church. That church was established in Acts 2.47. There were those on Pentecost that became members of it. Are you tonight a faithful member of it too? Do you know the security and tranquility that comes with peaceful existence in the calm hands of the Master? If not, why do you delay? If God could make those kinds of promises to the ancient nation of Israel and fulfill them, can we not rest assured that all the promises He has made to the church, He will fulfill? In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20-24, we read that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then he, we will be handed by the Son to the Father and forevermore to be in heaven. If you want to be a member of that group, then you need to be living in the fold of safety tonight. If we can help you in that regard, the plan of salvation reads, you need to believe, to repent, to confess, and to be baptized. If we can help you, why not tonight? 
if you have been a member of the body but no longer are faithful, why not come back to your first love this very evening? We'd be delighted to pray with you and for you. We would only invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing.